Welcome to the Compounders Podcast. On this show, we explore the topic of compounding from various angles, including through interviews with public and private company executives, investors who focus on compounders, and newer investment firms that are building a business they hope will become more valuable over time. All opinions expressed by your hosts and the podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of SNN or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only. It is not investment advice and should not be relied upon for any investment decisions. We are not recommending the purchase or sale of any securities. The host and guests may be beneficial owners of the securities discussed. You should not assume that the securities discussed are or will be profitable. My guest on the show today is Sean Stannard Stockton, the president and CIO of Ensemble Capital, an investment and wealth management firm that has built up quite a following on social media as a result of its consistent output of thoughtful content. Sean and his team of analysts manage over a billion dollars in equities, consisting of a concentrated portfolio of super high quality businesses. The team has developed a rigorous competitive advantage assessment process that is designed to identify only those companies with durable moats. In this wide-ranging conversation, Sean and I discuss how Ensemble employs its competitive advantage framework when constructing a portfolio, the benefits of having a wealth management arm alongside an investment management business, the rationale for creating and sharing so much thoughtful content on Twitter and on the firm's blog, his personal definition of a compounder, and what harmony and disharmony look like within an investment process. And without any further ado, here is my conversation with Sean Sanders Stockton, of ensemble capital. On your website, you define an ensemble as a group of people or things deliberately put together to work in harmony. What does harmony sound and feel like when the ensemble team is working well together? Oh, wow, what a great question. And you know, the, the, the phrase ensemble, naming a company's hard, and, and uh, we did that almost 20 years ago now, and, and it's, it's, it's played out well. I think it's conservative as well. And, and its meaning both relates to our company, right? A, a collection of people, who have all come together with a shared purpose. And I'll elaborate on that because it directly addresses your question. But also our portfolio, right? It's a it's a collection of companies that are put together to work in harmony and produce outstanding results over the long term. And so I think what that looks like for our team is very much about having a shared purpose, which I think most people understand that if you have a group of people, you want to accomplish something, you need to have a shared purpose, right? Um, there's one of my favorite quotes. It, it is an ancient poet, but I think of it as like one of my favorite management quotes and I'll, I'll butcher it, but it says something along the lines of, if you want to build a ship and send people to sea, don't drum up a group of people and tell them where to collect the wood and where, how to build a boat, but teach them to yearn for the vast blue sea. And to me, like, that's the shared purpose. Like, what are we doing here, right? Like, are you, if I'm going to go pick up sticks and build this stuff, like, why, right? But if the reason why is a, is a passionate belief about some grand adventure you're going on, like, all of us can get through a lot of work. Like, I, I've always kind of hated the quote from Warren Buffett, which is like, you tap dance to work. And anyone who's ever actually run a real business knows that, like, you love the work. But there's a lot of slogging, a lot of grinding, and it's not all tap dancing. A lot of it's just really hard work, but it's hard work that you can maybe not enjoy in the moment, but enjoy as part of the overall process because you're devoted to some goal. So I think that the really key thing is this shared purpose. You might think of like a, you know, um, an orchestra, you need someone leading it. We all playing the same song here, you know, but the second piece of it, I think, is to not only have a shared purpose, but to have a shared understanding of how we were all going to get there together, right? That 
people don't just go off on their own and follow up on a vision and execute all along. Building a company and managing a portfolio requires like really rolling up your sleeves and understanding all the details and, and making detailed alignment with that purpose. So for me, that that's kind of what it's all about. And when you talk about shared purpose, you, I it, it jogged my memory that that you guys have turned into a certified B Corp. And I'm I'm interested, how does that unite the team around a shared purpose, maybe in addition to the let's perform for our clients aspect? Yeah, so for anyone who doesn't know, a B Corporation is an entity that has been certified by B Lab, which, which initiates B certification, B Corp certifications. Uh, ben and Jerry's is a famous B Corp. Dannon is a B Corp. There's a number of wealth management, the investment management firm AKO that we think very highly of an ensemble is a, is a B Corp. And it really speaks to the idea that, um, yes, shareholders uh, need to be rewarded for the work of a company, right? That's why you, yeah, you own shares. <laughs> and yet also, your responsibility to all of your stakeholders. And this is not ESG, right? this is not social responsible investing. This is about how we manage ensemble capital. And we seek to, and have always sought to, even though our certification is new, run the business in a way that creates value for all of our stakeholders, right? Like our customers need to create, receive value. They're paying us, right? <laughs> and that's value to us, but they need to receive value in excess of what they're, they're paying. Our, our team, our employees need to receive value in excess of the work that they put in. And boy, they put in really hard work, right? And that reward is partially financial, but it's also about pursuing that shared purpose that we're talking about, right? A belief that we're coming to work every day to build something. I think when you talk to people ensemble, it's one of the most common things is people talk about why they like working here is because like, because we're building something and, and I got my part that I'm building and it's in service of some bigger bigger part, right? So, you know, I think that for us as Ensemble, like, I mean, look, I, I got into running money because I wanted to make money. And I think that anyone who kind of runs money and says that's not money's not important to me, it's like you're fooling yourself, right? We're all we're all in the money business. So we care about money. But I care about building something important in the world. And I, I care about this team of people that we've put together. And I was reminded of that during COVID, during the first couple of weeks when the county of San Mateo, where our firm was headquarters, was the first in the nation to shut down and was reminded like, oh, there's like 50 people on our healthcare plan, right? It's all this team, but all but their family and they're all depending on us to get through. And it's not going to be just like me getting us through. It's this whole team getting us through, right? In service of all these stakeholders, right? And so that's always how we run the business. I think that many great businesses run themselves that way, whether they call themselves B Corps or not. Um, but it's really fundamental how we think about value generation. And my, my guess is that any investment process or philosophy kind of emanates from things that you saw in your career experiences where it, you know, things that you didn't want to repeat. So I'm interested as you were creating an ensemble and coming up with a, a philosophy and a process and a focus, you know, what does it sound like to you when um, there's distinct disharmony within investment process? And how, how did that, how did, how did that having experienced that at some point in your life uh, help you understand what it, you know, what you wanted to create at ensemble? Harmony on a team is something that you're always headed towards. It's not like a constant state of being, right? And that that companies like the universe suffer from entropy, meaning that they're you're constantly degrading into chaos. And you need to constantly move back towards order, right? And so um, we've certainly had periods of disharmony on our team over the years, and, and everyone's experienced that in their life and their work. And I think really what it comes down to is that when there becomes this misalignment of purpose, 
or misalignment between the path we're going to take to, to get there. Not, not the little tiny details, but the overarching processes, the overarching assumptions that you make as a team. And um, and each time we've run into those, we've spent time hashing through them and, and getting back to alignment. You know, I, I think that that's always the most critical thing. If you think about like a sports team, you, we all know if you followed sports, there's times when a team is like operating in alignment with shared purpose. And there's times when they're not, right? It's very visible from the outside. And so I'm not talking about some sort of magic or special thing. I'm just talking about the way that all of us, when you see groups of people working together, there's times when they operate in harmony and times when they don't. And, and you want, as an organization, to be figuring out how do we stay in alignment? How do we stay in harmony? When disharmony arises, which is totally normal and natural, how do we bring things back um, towards that level of harmony? And, and sometimes disharmony highlights really important problems that need to be addressed. So it's not to say disharmony needs to be squashed back down. <laughs> it needs to be examined and understood and then addressed. And I guess from, from my research and, and our discussions, my sense is that one of the things that keeps you all rowing in the same direction and and kind of you know provides a framework for harmony would be this maniacal focus on companies' competitive advantages. It's it's just something it's like a north star shining light that you guys can all come back to even in moments of disharmony. Maybe talk a little bit about where that emanates from and how that focuses that focus on com- competitive advantages actually manifests your, manifests itself as you're discussing ideas. Yeah, so I think where it really comes from is like, I think most investors, I started off very early in my career with a certain set of beliefs about investing and they evolved over time. And one of the things that caused them to evolve is difficult market environments. So I, you know, first got into the investment world in, in 1999. Um, I first started being involved in directly managing money in 2004, but I was, you know, right there with the portfolio manager during the, the declines and all of that. Um, but I started off in 2004 and going forward up until the financial crisis was like, okay, yeah, I know how to invest and things are going up and this kind of works. And then when the financial crisis hit and you had the worst recession in a hundred years and you had businesses go to zero and you had the world worry about a true depression beginning to roll out, right? Um, we survived all of that and we came out the other side intact. But it caused me to then say, okay, well, what did I learn, right? And what I learned, I think, was um, a lot about my own self and the psychological risks and pressure that I'm prepared to manage through. And what I realized was that when something like the financial crisis comes along, it is such an overwhelming event that no company can like dodge it, right? No company can get out of the way. But that there were certain companies that, that seemed to be more in control of their destiny than others mm. did, you know? And and as I, I looked at that, and as I reviewed a lot of the kind of the reading on investing I'd done much earlier in my career and went back with it with more experienced eyes, I just came to recognize that these ideas about like, it, something's, something's a great business, that can be said so easily. But if you really think about it and understand it, and, and you can find that what makes a business great often are these competitive advantage they have, right? They are advantaged in their competition with other companies. And that this to one degree or another puts things in their control to some extent, just more so than the average company. And so I just came to realize that like there were gonna be more events like the financial crisis. It wouldn't be the same thing, but there would be other terrifying bad events that impacted my portfolio. And that I knew that the businesses that I was prepared to hold through those, right? If doing so is the right move, were those that were competitively advantaged that I could say like, oh my gosh, that stock's down so much. 
yes, people are so pessimistic, but these reasons we own this business haven't changed, right? And that that those are the things that I was personally able to to hang on to. And so that's really what we we focus on. And I'm happy to give you examples in our portfolio today, or or I think you wanted to talk about um, the process that we use for going through that, I think. Yeah, meaning like, so, all right, so you have this framework that's that's always in kind of in place. And then a new idea comes up and it, it feels to me like you have a very strong mm, desire and, and I guess maybe uh, process for sussing out what's a true mode and true durable competitive advantage. So how does that, when you're having discussions about a new idea, how does that actually manifest itself? Like where does, where does that philosophy, you know, kind of filter into the, the discussions? So there's lots of reading you can do about competitive advantages in moats. And, I, and we've done a lot of that reading, encourage people to read them. And, and all of those will tell you about competitive advantages in a general sense. And then as you learn about those and you get experience as an investor, you start seeing those things playing out at kind of a micro sense. Mm-hmm. And so for us, um, just like growth investors orient their, their radar, their investment radar around these companies are growing quickly. Maybe I should go look at that. Right. And and kind of traditional classic value investors orient themselves around compressed kind of current valuations. And they say, like, gosh, that's a low price to book value. It's a low price to current earnings and low PE ratio. I should go look at that. We orient ourselves around competitive advantages, which means we don't pay a lot of attention to stocks per se, but we will be reading, like everyone does in investing, and come across something that suggests some sort of competitive advantage, something that catches our attention. And then that will be the thing that we, the thread that we start pulling on. And, you know, 90% of the time you pull on that thread and you say like, oh, that's a nice little advantage, but it's not really all that compelling, right? Or it's just one advantage. And other times you kind of pull on those threads and you start realizing, wow, this is just one advantage that's part of a latticework of advantages that are intertwined and really can protect this business. And and that's what we're looking for. And, and it is only those businesses that I think we are well position to value correctly. Because if the future is outside your control, well, how can they be valued, right? It's almost by definition demands a passive approach, right? But businesses that where the future is at least somewhat in their control have more ability to forecast their outcomes simply because they are in their own control. Um, and so for us, we, we kind of came to the conclusion, like these are the businesses that we're prepared to value ourselves that we think we can value better than the market can. And then most importantly, that they have characteristics that will allow us to hold the stock even when they get through bad times. Because commit advantages are not like an invincibility cloak, cloak, right? They're just some nice armor. So when you go into battle, you can hopefully make it through. And quantitatively scoring and ranking companies based on their competitive advantages, especially if you're comparing across industries, has always struck me as a challenging and somewhat subjective and error-prone endeavor. So as you think about constructing a portfolio of such companies, I mean, how do you go about doing that and, and scoring them um like within you know companies within the same industry or even across industries as you're thinking about like well this 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 is durable but relative to what or you know this 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 would be durable in one industry but not in the other how does how does all that qualitative and quantitative um scoring or qual- quantitative scoring how does that how does that end up in a portfolio sure yeah, you know, an important thing is we're not trying to um, create a system for categorizing every stock, right? Um, we would do something very different if we did. We're only trying to analyze a very small set of companies, about the 20 to 25 companies that we own, plus a set of companies that we don't own, but might like to at the right price. And that's all we're trying to, to understand. 
And so when it comes to, you know, assessing a moat and, and ranking on a relative basis, our portfolio, which, which we do, we have, we basically create quartiles on our assessment of the strength of a company's moat, of our belief in the long-term relevance of their products and services, and then a series of other questions around management and around our ability to understand the business, how forecastable it is. And I totally get where you're coming from. It's like, how, but how could you force rank, you know, MasterCard versus some small cap retailer? Right. I mean, like what that, that doesn't make any sense. But if you turn the question around to yourself and you recognize the whole point of conviction is about how you will behave, mm. then you can answer the questions more clearly. So the way I think about it is how, when, when I'm doing the ratings over the portfolio, the way I think about it is how confident am I that this company is not going to be hurt by emerging competition over the next 10 years plus? And when you think of it that way, it's not too hard to do it between totally different companies, right? If you're trying to say, what is the strength of a network effect moat versus scale effect moat? It's like, it's, it's almost, it's, it's not almost a nonsensical question. It can't be scored. Yeah. But if you think to yourself, what is the confidence I have between Home Depot's ability to navigate competition, you know, versus Google's, so some scale advantage and network effects, well, there's a, there's a lot easier to, to do that, right? And, and you're, you're able to take in a much more nuanced, much more qualitative assessment of all these various competitive advantages those companies have. And then once you have that relative scoring and you know you you, you talk you think about MasterCard versus Home Depot versus Google, how does that inform position sizing and portfolio construction specifically? I mean, does valuation creep in there as well as, oh, yeah. as a variable? So maybe talk a little bit about that. For sure. So the Kelly criterion is one of the frameworks for position sizing. One of the few frameworks actually for position sizing equity portfolios. It's, I find it shocking that there's so much literature, so much professional and academic work that's been done on investing. And everyone can talk about what's a stock's worth and how much it might go up, but how much should you own is much never discussed. It's like you turn on CNBC and it's just a parade of people saying short this or buy this one, but no one tells you how much, right? And yeah. uh, and if, when you look at most investment managers, websites and everything, they don't talk much about it. Why is this four and this one's two and this one's eight percent? Like, what? How's it? Where's it come from? And there's just never been a lot of rigor from most people around that, unless it's some version of like super diversified. We own 150 stocks and everything, 75 basis points, or whatever the, those numbers are, right? Um, Kelly Criterion basically says you want to make it's, it, it comes from gambling, so it's spoken the word of bets, and it, you want to make bets that are going to pay off big if you're right, but also that are quite sure to pay off, right? So just imagine, this is the Kelly criterion as explained in layperson terms, right? So just imagine somebody comes along to you and says, I'm, I will, if you bet a million dollars, I will pay you one buck if you're right. And the bet is whether the sun's going to rise tomorrow. So if the sun rises, you win a buck. If it doesn't rise, you lose a million dollars. Well, that's a tiny payoff. But I mean, it's a sure thing, right? The sun's going to rise tomorrow. So most rational people, you should say like, I'll take that bet because it's going to happen, Right. If it was something different, like, um, you know, it's going to rain seven Tuesdays from now, but we'll pay you a thousand to one if you're right. Well, maybe we'll take that bet. A thousand to one is really attractive odds, but you wouldn't go big on the bet, right? You would say like, let's let's make a really small bet, right? Yeah. And so what the Kelly Criterion points out is that it's not just the magnitude of gain that matters. It's how likely you are to be right. So when we think about our conviction elements, it's about how likely we are to right, be right. So businesses that have truly outstanding competitive moats 
products and services that have no risk to relevance over the long term, management teams that fully understand shareholder value generation, completely respect and partner with their employees, understand stakeholder value more generally, run businesses that are intrinsically understandable to our team, and, and operate in ways that are forecastable enough. I mean, the future is just not forecastable, right? But forecastable enough for us to make prudent decision making. When you find a business like that, you don't need as much upside to be make a good investment as another business that's quite good, but not as good along each of those, those metrics. There's more uncertainty, right? And so from our standpoint, we think about conviction as one key input to how big our position size is. And then the upside of fair value is the other. Right. And, and we have an intrinsic value. What we think of as what is the value? If we own this business in its entirety and our only earnings were coming from the cash flow to us as private owners, what price would we pay for the stock to make the attractive return? That's what we think of as intrinsic value. And we are looking to buy a discount, hopefully huge discounts to that intrinsic value. Got it. And when you are, I guess you talk a lot about predictability and forecastability. And should I, should I, how does that manifest itself in terms of that intrinsic value um, calculation? Is that, is that via DCF? Is it via multiples? Like how, like, you know, whatever, super predictable business versus a less predictable business. How does, how would you, how would you categorize the the difference in which that something like that would be valued and, and how it would manifest itself? There's a couple, couple levers there. So one is the sizing. So just to isolate around forecastability, like just make it even simpler, like how volatile are the cash flows of this company, right? Or how predictable are they, right? And so a business that has more predictable cash flows is going to be one worth more than one that has um, really volatile cash flows. And two, you're, we're going to be able to own a larger position size to some extent, right? So it's from the stability that's intrinsic to the investment. And um, I mean, if you think about like a treasury bond that was yielding 15% yield to maturity, we have perfect stability, right, of cash flows. No, it's known. And I don't see why we wouldn't want to own that in our portfolio today. If I could have a 15% yield to maturity treasury, that's not growing. It trades at a PE ratio that's still very high, but it is known cash flows is going to make me 15% a year for, for a decade. Done. I would love to own it, right? You can't buy that today. And, and that's, you know, so that's why we don't own something like that. And I can't imagine owning that except in an environment of very high inflation, but the stability of the cash flows definitely matter. So we have various tools that cost of, of equity that we use, you know, which we think is our hurdle rate, right? It's not, it's, it's not some multiple of beta, it has nothing to do with cap M. Those theories are basically academic theories that are very useful in understanding the theory of financial assets, and they have no, no bearing on how actual assets are priced. And so we think a lot about, um, you know, how much do we need to earn? If we own it, we think it's fairly valued. How much do we need to own? <laughs> I mean, earn, excuse me, as as shareholders. And some businesses are higher than others, right? And this podcast is called Compounders. So it's something that I've thought a lot about. And I know you've thought a lot about that concept. How would you, in your own words, define you know, a compounder? And, and, and I assume that that such such companies show up throughout the portfolio. So what does that mean to you? So when I think of a compounder, I think about a certain type of business, a little bit different than a stock, and just in the sense that um, if you think about very like historical value investing, like 100 years ago, Ben Graham, the reason price to book value was emphasized was because the value of a business was often characterized by its balance sheet. And when you characterize value by its balance sheet, it tends to be pretty stable. 
balance sheets are not super volatile the way cash flows are hugely volatile, right? But if, if, if balance sheet value is your source of value, it's pretty reasonable to assume it's not going to change all that much over one, two, three, four years, right? It, it can grow some, but it's not going to change all that much. And so therefore you can kind of assess a value of a business and mostly focus on the discount to that value, right? And, and you might update your value of the balance sheet from time to time, but that's not the main swing factor. The main swing factor is the discount to that relatively stable value. Today, a lot of businesses are not balance sheet value businesses. They're cash flow businesses. They produce enormous amounts of cash flow. It's clearly very valuable. But the relation between their cash flows and their balance sheet may not be all that high. It can be. There's plenty of businesses that are, but it may not be. And so when we think about compounding, we think about businesses that are able to grow the value of their business at high, high rates. When a company is able to do that, well, then you can pay a price that may not look so cheap initially and may not be that big of a discount to you know whatever the, the value is in a more static basis is. But because it can compound over time, it gives time, it works kind of in your favor. And your discount keeps getting larger, even if the stock price is stable, as the value of the business grows, right? So I think that one of the key decisions for investors is to say, am I seeking to find businesses that create value in the world, that build value for themselves, that will become bigger and more valuable entities over time? And I want to participate in that growth. And yeah, I want to pay a discount too. I want to get super premium returns, but I want to make sure these are great businesses that are compounding value of the business, right? And then more traditional value investors are saying like, I don't even know if this business, like I can't forecast it. I don't know where it's going to go. Maybe they're going to screw things up. But if I pay a cheap enough price, I'm covered. I got a margin of safety. I don't have to worry too much about that stuff. So I don't use the word compounder all that much myself, but we are absolutely focused on investing in businesses that create and build value year after year after year. And I think for me, that just fits my personality and what I want to do. And also it's the sort of business I want to participate in. Like I'm an owner of this business. I want to participate in businesses that are creating value in the world, not those that are just static assets. I mean, that's fine. It's not like a moral thing, but it's just not very interesting. Yeah. So I promised myself to not ask you anything about Netflix, given how many opportunities you have had to talk about that holding. So let's let's talk about a different stuff. Let's talk about perimeter solutions. Um, I think it's a really interesting one to discuss. It's got somewhat of a unique sole source relationship with the U.S. Forest Service. So how do you assess the width and depth of a moat surrounding a business that has a sole source relationship with an entity, the U.S. government, that is constantly seeking multiple suppliers and bidders? So Perimeter is um, a unique business in a unique circumstance, and the investment proposition expands beyond just their current situation. Um, I would say that it has been unusual for us to own businesses that have the government as a major customer. In the case of Perimeter, they are um, they have been the only provider of retardant used to put out wildfires. Um, the reason we own the business is because of a whole set of competitive advantages they have to maintain that position despite the fact that there is a new entrant coming to come in. So the government wants to have more than one source. That makes perfect sense, right? And, and the, the number crunchers, the money people are like, we definitely want more than one 
seller. And that makes sense. I mean, if I'm a branding company, I want multiple vendors for everything I do. That's just common sense, right? But if you talk to the firefighters, the people that fly planes, they'll point out like fire retardants a very small portion of the cost of firefighting. And the damage of wildfires is enormous. So I happen to be in California and during the really bad fires of 2020, they were talking about like a 2% hit to GDP for California from the fires. Like these are enormous costs, right? And so if you think about retardant as some function of the total potential cost of wildfire, it's, it's immaterial. It is a rounding number. What's really important is the retardant works. It's always there. It's there when it's needed. Fires occur very, very quickly, right? And so perimeter needs to maintain stores of this, of the retardant. And all these air bases, knowing that a bunch of them won't even have a fire that year, but they got to keep that inventory there. Others are going to need way more than they have. And so they are really a logistics provider to the, to the Forest Service and CAL FIRE and other firefighting organizations. I've kind of thought of them a little bit like if you think about the NASCAR pit crews. NASCAR pit crews are not selling tires. They're selling incredibly rapid changes of tires, right? Service. And and that's exactly what Perimeter is doing. They're not selling fire retardant. They're 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 selling the logistic of making sure fire retardant is in the right plane at the right time, right? So they have a guaranteed twenty four hours notice, get it to any base in the country. And so as as the as the competitor, which is the first business called called Fortress, they were recently bought by Compass Mineral. They're the first company to even be qualified to be allowed to be sold to the Forest Service in a long time. They now have to go through this process of trying to convince Forest Service and Cal Fire and different people to use them. And, and the numbers people would say like, yes, just allocate them some of the market share because they're thinking just about you know, cost benefit. Forces will tell you they're not even trying to compete on the price, but that's another question. Um, the bigger thing is um, what needs to actually get done, right? So maybe some portion will go to Fortress. They wouldn't be surprised at all. But in terms of the overall business, all these other competitive advantages about the network, the reason why planes cannot mix these retardants from one service provider to the other, how that limits usage, and a whole whole range of things. And I think this is one of the things about competitive modes is that you really want to understand the detail level. So for instance, the contract renewal date for retardant is on July 1st every year, meaning it's in the middle of the fire season. So who exactly wants to say, it's July, I know, how about right now we switch service providers for a mission critical input, that's a super low cost anyway. What we're using works, right? And it's not actually too, a big part of our overall budget, but let's see if we can't switch to somebody else right now and potentially put actual people's lives and property at risk. That's a competitive advantage. That's an advantage that says, even if the other guy might be a bit better, people still won't switch, right? You need to have this large magnitude of competitive um, assault to overcome those advantages. And not just that, that one renewal dates the whole advantage, it's just one little micro example of, of the reasons why it is difficult and unlikely for their customers to switch away from them. And is it is it unusual for you guys to invest in companies where the moat trajectory may be kind of uh, towards a shrink versus a grow? Is that is when you say that that perimeter is a little unique? Is that is that also what you mean? Is that I mean my guess no, is No, I mean there is that the perimeter was purchased by a holding company called EverArc. It's not exactly a SPAC, but you can think of it as a SPAC. What's unusual about it is that it was basically founded by Nick Howley, um, who's the founder of Transdime and uh, an, air, an air parts maker, and William Thorndike, the author of The Outsiders that your, your listeners have probably heard of, um, as well as some very smart young executives. 
and they're going to be doing other acquisitions, including acquisitions that are outside of the fire space. So this is actually, um, well, the wildfire area is a fascinating and important area, and they're going to be doing more acquisitions in this area. This is actually much more like Transdime in that it, it's, it's kind of an understanding about an M&A acquisition process and, and how capital allocators can generate value in certain business areas. So this is this is very much a management play, you might say, as opposed to just an analysis of perimeter. I think a decade from now, the business will be a lot more than just perimeter solutions. Got it. Interesting. And in my experience, companies with exceptional cultures produce results that often surprise to the upside. In other words, when you look back over longer periods of time, such companies produce results you would have never anticipated. Maybe talk a little bit about that phenomenon and how you view it. And if you think that Fastenal, which is a company I've been really fascinated with over time, fits with that description. Yeah, I think it's a really important thing to keep in mind, this, this idea that unexpected value generation can occur. And it kind of gets back to this idea of investing in, in compounders, right? Um, I think it was Phil Fisher talked about being an opportunistic investor, right? So Phil Fisher was this like pivoting moment, right? From like the classic value investing Ben Graham era. And he was kind of one of the, the people that helped Warren Buffett evolve more into this kind of opportunistic mindset and, and looking for business that, that create value, right? And so um, you don't want to go out and find a business that's really good at creating value, but then assume that nothing unexpected to the upside is ever going to happen. <laughs> but to be careful, because you can't go around valuing stuff that who knows, we don't even know what it's going to be, but it might be valuable, right? No. So we have spent time trying to think about which businesses are more or less likely to create value. So you said you were going to ask me about Netflix. Just to give a simple example of Netflix. Netflix is doing some work on video gaming. It's pretty easy to imagine the idea, you know, execution is a whole different question, but the idea that a decade from now, Netflix could be a major destination for video gamers, right? That's not like, that's not like a transformative thing. It's like, they are already doing it, right? They already have some video games that you can play and it's, it's very aligned. And so to, to assume that there's no opportunity for them in a video game seems wrong. To price in some huge, obvious value creation also seems wrong. But being open to the idea that there's unexpected value creation that it could occur, I think is important. Fastenal is an interesting one to, to suggest. I think it absolutely has in the past. And I think it, it may in the in the future. And so what did Fastenal do in the past that was this unexpected value creation? I think one is that it grew and grew and grew for a very long period of time at, at high rates in a very unexpected way. I don't think many people, you know, in um, in the 1990s, if they any of them ventured the level of revenue fastly achieving today, he'll be like, you're crazy. That is crazy. So that's unexpected. So that's unexpected value creation, right? They also were able to do stuff like with vending machines, right? That was very innovative and allowed them to create new markets or at least serve people in new ways that was value generative. So I think there's another example of that. On a go forward basis, one thing that's kind of interesting about Fastenal is trying to figure out how long can they keep growing at rates higher than, than the economy. So we generally make five to 10 year forecasts, an explicit forecast period of, of periods when you would have some uh, above economic growth level. I mean, not that we think every business in our portfolio will, but that's kind of the range. But beyond 10 years, we don't tend to model in any growth beyond economic growth that far out. It's hard to think that far out. And with Fastenal, we've struggled with this because if you assume that growth is going to slow, you know, from say high single digits, 10% down to 5% over the next five years and just 
go from there, which you might kind of expect of the average company growing high single digits within five years is probably decayed around 5%. Then you think to yourself, why is it always trade so much more expensive than this would imply, right? And if you start with the numbers and say like, well, what if they do this for 20 years? You start realizing, oh, <laughs> the value gets really big, really fast, right? And so, you know, this is definitely one where we've spent a lot of time thinking not so much about like an entirely new offering, like the Netflix offering video games, but more, can, how long can they really sustain this for? I mean, they've done an amazing job and can they sustain it for a lot longer than we expect? And I would think that's a, a form of unexpected value generation for sure. But at most simply, great management teams that run businesses that have great relations with all of their stakeholders get presented opportunities to create more value from time to time. And, and you want to be with businesses that capitalize on that. Yeah, and I think what what is interesting about Fastenal to me is that you have the the market growing X and GDP growing X and them growing at some multiple of X from a, for a really long time. Yeah, and like y- you can you can try to come up with all these individual reasons why they went into vending early and the, and all of that stuff, but culture has to be the backbone, right? Like there has to be something differentiated about the management and the culture to consistently achieve that and to be whatever, the forefront of any changes in the industry that allow that. And that's, you know, that's the kind of intangible, like, I don't know, what's it, what's it going to be worth? But I just think that, and there's no way you, you can't put a value on, on culture in that per, per specific way. But I do think something like that is, is, is always, you know, if you can find businesses like that, you want to f- assemble an entire portfolio of them. Yeah. Um, so cell discipline is something that I think is, is often under discussed. We talked about position sizing, something that's under discussed. I think cell discipline is also under discussed because, you know, whatever, what are you, what are you buying now? Right. What's interesting right now is the topic du jour. So let's, let's say that you have deemed a company, you know, to have the competitive advantages that you like and, and, and have, you know, has, has the characteristics of a typical ensemble company. What, what typically causes you to deviate from that and 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 get you know and sell something out of the portfolio? So there's really two reasons. I mean, think about position sizing is about conviction and upside. So if either of those evaporate, we're out, right? Um, on the as a stock appreciates, it naturally becomes a bigger part of your portfolio, right? As to the extent it appreciates faster than your portfolio is or the market is, right? And yet the upside potential often slows. There's plenty of times when a stock moves up 20% over the course of the year, but the intrinsic value of the business increased by 30% and the stock got cheaper. That, yep. so, you, so it's not to say just because the stock goes up, we trim it. But a stock compressing its discount to its intrinsic value, all else equal, we want to own less. I mean, I think it's just like basic investing, right? And so I think we have a, um, a more systematic and disciplined approach around trimming than many investors do in the sense that um, we have like a, it's a very quantitative analytical process that takes the scores from our conviction and takes the calculated upside to fair value and says like, so this is a 4.2% position. Well, and then it goes up a bunch. Now it's a 3.2% position and we're going to trim it. Right. And, and we just, we kind of relentlessly follow that. Right. And it's, it is not a black box. We know exactly how it works. So anytime that it doesn't seem to be doing the right thing, it causes us to say like, well, what's going on here? And sometimes we think to ourselves, oh, we're recognizing the market's telling us something <laughs> and we have to go look at our models and think about stuff. Are we missing something, you know, but so it's, it's not, we aren't running this as like an algorithmic quant model by any means, but it, it tells us, you know, what these position sizes are. And so as a stock appreciates and gets up towards fair value, we want to own, own less and less of it, but we are seeking to own premium assets. 
And if you were to go out to find a company that's that's a premium company run by a really capable management team, and you said, I'll give you a fair value for your company. They would say, why would we sell for a fair value? You say, well, because it's fair, right? So why wouldn't you take it? You say, well, yeah, but it's a great business. Like you want to, you can have the business, but you got to pry it out of my hands. You're going to give me a premium bid. This is how every great management team of great companies operates. No great management team of a great company would say, oh, we'll sell for fair value. They all want a premium bid, right? And so we operate the same way. So a stock, as it hits fair value, we're not saying like, oh, we're done, we're out. All fair value means is that it, we've calculated it to generate its required hurdle rate for our purposes. That's all that means, right? So we're being fairly compensated. Why would we sell something that we're being fairly compensated for? Now, if we have other businesses that are even more attractive, we may well trim out of it to go buy other stuff, but we're not going to go to cash just because there's something fairly valued, right? But as it gets to a premium and starts trading at 5 10 15% above our, our calculation, then we're, we're kind of going to zero, right? And we're, we're getting out of the name completely. Um, so if you own premium assets and you, and especially ones that are growing, and you're willing to underwrite a longer term time frame than the market typically does, you will find that your stocks are often fairly or undervalued, that it takes a lot for a stock to get truly overvalued. Um, but that happens sometimes and we're happy to exit and move on. And how often are you do you find yourself arguing about the position size relative to what the the quantitative metrics spit out? Right? Is that is that a you know you sit in the meeting and say that the the mark the the black box not the black box the box says that we should do three point two percent and yep. but everyone thinks it should maintain a five. Does that does that happen internally or do you do you try to? not dogmatically, but some try to stay close to what the the, quali- the the quantitative output says. Years ago, when we first adopted this approach, um, we used to question it a lot. And it would often reveal problems with their algorithm, mm-hmm. things that weren't seemed logical on their face, but when examined more deeply, you realize wasn't quite logical. And so we've massaged it and edited it a whole lot over the years. It's very rare now. And typically what it comes down to is that if a, let's say there's a leading analyst on a stock and it's rallying and we're about to go take a percent off the top and the analyst is like, this doesn't seem right. I don't know why we want to be selling. Like, you know, so then we say like, well, let's go look at the conviction ratings. Right. And some things that happens is that you say like, these got stale. There's yeah. been a huge, this issue we were worried about, it, it, it faded slowly enough. There wasn't like that day when we said that issue isn't a worry anymore. So update our conviction where, where we have a higher conviction. You can say it kind of faded and yet the rating didn't change. And you realize that like, oh, it's not that we need a higher position size than the model says. It's that the, the appreciation of the stock and the model telling us to trim informed us there might be something wrong. We went to go examine and we realized that oh, convictions was too weak. We should, we should rise it higher. Now, of course, that's dangerous. You can just mm-hmm. chase stocks that way. But because we use a relative model to move something up, you got to move something else down. Got it. And so therefore it forces these trade-offs. And I would say these days, more often than not, when we go through that examination, we say like, oh, I think, yeah, we just got to trim. It's the right thing to do. I don't want to because gosh, the stock's so hot and it feels good and happy to, to own it. I don't want to trim, but we got discipline and we're going to stick with it. And one of the things that we want to do on this podcast is not just talk about individual securities and and philosophy and process. We always we also like to talk about the business of investment management because that, as you are, you're trying to grow you're trying to grow a business that can compound. So a lot of investment firms see their core value proposition to clients being directly tied to investing. As you're building ensemble the business, 
How do the wealth management offerings fit within that vision? Yeah, I found that, especially for the sort of strategy we run, it's very atypical for us to be doing it inside a registered investment advisory wealth management firm. And so I'll tell you a bit about the history of it because I think it's very relevant to how we got to be this way. Um, really, the firm was, you know, the founder, Kurt Brown, who's now retired, had been a broker back in the 90s and started up his own RIA because that was a better way to serve clients and brought in a small collection of, of his pretty wealthy network of friends and family and stuff. And I joined them and it was kind of our go-to-market strategy. We're managing portfolios of stocks for individuals. And as you grow that sort of business, you naturally have some of those people say, well, should I do this rollover IRA, right? Should I do this other thing or whatever mm -hmm. it might be? And, you know, we were financial professionals and we're supporting those people. And this is probably like 20 years ago, right? And, and, um, and as we kept growing, I started realizing like, I had this business because I love investing. I want to pick stocks. But gosh, like this wealth planning and financial planning for people is hugely valuable. If you think less about your relative performance versus the benchmark and more about people reaching their own personal financial goals, you realize the latter is the one that's important, right? Now, yes, I absolutely want to beat the benchmark. And there's no excuse for trailing somebody because, well, it's a wealth management sort of account. But if you're helping people reach their goals, that is the goal, right? Yeah. And so what I found is that as much as as Kind of financial planning with financial clients can be seen as like retail clients and therefore not be sticky. Then in fact, it can be quite the opposite. That if you are able to focus your client base on their long-term goals, helping them understand those long-term goals and how to get there, that they stop paying so much attention to the day-to-day and week-to-week and month-to-month fluctuations in the market and stay much more focused on the longer term. So um, like every firm, <laughs> does an investment strategy that that has a high active share. Ours is over 90%. We've had periods of underperformance like we've been going through recently. And yet we've had over 99% client retention every year in the history of the firm. We've never had a year of net outflows, right? I think that is very much a function of us being a wealth management firm, right? And, and building these trusted relationships. And when problems happen in our portfolio, and this is a 15-year client of the firm who our advisors have worked with them and understanding wealth transfer to the next generation and supporting their children and learning about investing and helping them and their spouse work through complex issues and money. The idea that people can stick with our process and stick with us through all those things makes a whole lot more sense. So for me, I've realized that many of the great investors over time have generated track records in part because they had some sort of permanent capital. And, and wealth management clients certainly are not permanent capital. There's no lockup. There's no barrier. Every single one of our clients could leave us tomorrow. But there is the competitive advantage of having served people in a way and provided value in ways that go above and beyond the alpha generation that makes those clients far more likely to stick with you over the longer term, which benefits us as a firm, but also benefits the client. Because all the evidence says that investors underperform the investment funds and strategies that they invest in. And so a big part of our entire communication strategy, both direct one-on-one -on -one stuff, plus our blogging and Twitter and everything else, is about trying to collapse that gap to say, like, we've got conviction, but we're going to explain it to you in a way that can help you have conviction. Because when, when it's the second, third week of March 2020, it's not about how much conviction we have. You, the client, needs to believe in us. And so we're going to tell you all about how we do things and why. And again, on the lines of business building, Ensemble's done a really nice job building its brand via Twitter and social media. Um, and and through the thoughtful pieces that consistently appear on your blog, intrinsic value. Uh, sorry, intrinsicinvesting.com. What is the ultimate goal of those efforts and 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 being you know just being so prolific in what you're sharing with the investment community? So, 
it comes out of me personally being somebody who learns through writing. So I learned long ago that um, when I go out to write something out that I believe that I learn during that process, it's not that I do all the learning and then I distill it and publish it. And here's my learnings, right? It's that the writing process itself forces learning, right? It's really easy to believe a lot of things in your mind and even say them to people when you write them down on a piece of paper and then put it out for public consumption, where it's going to live forever on the internet, you tend to think a lot harder about your beliefs. You tend to go look for evidence and proof of those things and, and be sure that you believe what it is that you say you're believing. So to me, all of the, the writing and, and the podcasts like this, all of this stuff that we're doing is part of our own process of learning and research. And yet we've also come to believe that if you can take your learnings and then explain it in an accessible way that intelligent adults are able to understand, not, not just equity analysts, but intelligent adults, right, can understand, then you have, you really know it, right? That, that's, I think that's the test. This is an old concept, right? It's like, if you don't know something until you can teach it sort of thing, right? And that doesn't mean teaching it to other experts, it means teaching it to everybody, right? And so, you know, I, I hesitate to hold ourselves out as teachers because we, like every investor, is constantly trying to learn, right? There's no like finish line where you're now the teacher. But we do our best to share our learnings and 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 we learn a lot from other investors who do the same. Interesting. And anyone who listens to this podcast will recognize my bias towards smaller companies because I believe that you're more likely to find pricing and efficiency as you go further down the market cap spectrum. So, you know, you guys compete in the larger cap world and it's there's, there's plenty of analysts and, co- you know, people covering all, all of these companies that you own. How do you how do you think about differentiating, differentiating yourself and succeeding in a world that is, you know, so well covered by the investment community? Yeah, if I thought that we were trying to achieve an information advantage where we had proprietary information that nobody else had or that most of the investors did not have. I would definitely want to focus on less well-covered names, right? But my view is that up until about the year 2000, that was exactly what investors tried to do. Go get proprietary information better and faster than everybody else. I mean, it wasn't all that long before 2000 that to get an annual report, you had to mail a letter to a company to have them mail it back to you, right? <laughs> so getting stuff faster and consuming it faster and knowing stuff faster, there was a clear edge available. In 2000 and around 2000, kind of two things happened. One, the internet brought so much information to so many more people and greatly expanded the amount of information that was easily accessible to kind of everybody. And two, they started passing laws that said, oh, this insider trading stuff, yeah, like it's, it's actually illegal now, right? Like previously in 2000, a management team could just meet with an analyst and basically say like, oh, the court is going great. And like, that wasn't particularly considered not okay. It's kind of crazy to think about. We lived in that sort of world, right? But now there's like actually real regulation FD sorts of rules where it's like, yeah, most of the relevant information is out there. Now, that's not to say there's no proprietary information that nobody can get. But what we are trying to do is trying to have a better understanding than the market about the way in which a company's competitive advantage, the industry in which it operates, the way its competitors behave, how customers and society is going to evolve over time, how is that going to unfold? And I'll give you an example right now in our portfolio is, is Google with AI. So the initial knee-jerk reactions were like, oh, it's going to be terrible for Google search, you know, and or maybe not. Maybe it's going to be great for Google with AI. 
And we don't have any proprietary information that, that says, like, well, we just happen to know their AI program is superior to somebody else's or something like that. It's just that we're spending time thinking about well, where is the nature of Google's advantages come from, right? What is the nature of, of what users are trying to achieve when they search something? And, and, and how can AI serve those, those questions, you know, serve answers to those questions? So one of the things to know about, about Google, and this is, I just give this as an example about what we're trying to achieve, right? In small caps versus large cap. Google's like one of the biggest cap companies. So it's the one where like, yeah, how could you have any advantage, right? One of the things that we've seen not many people talk about is that most of the searches on Google are zero click searches where there's no link that gets clicked on. The answer is presented by Google on the page. So either the map shows up or the picture shows up or the product shows up, right? Or you Google, what's the capital of California? It just says Sacramento, right? Or it has a Wikipedia entry. A lot of it looks just like an AI's answer actually, right? Because a lot of the AI answers, what are they doing? They're taking those same websites and summarizing them. So Google in their zero click search is already serving that sort of need, but zero click searches tend to not be very high value searches. High value searches are what Google calls Nora searches, that there's no one right answer. And everything that is a purchase decision is a Nora answer. There is no one right answer to what to buy. The whole concept of free market is predicated on the idea there's different opinions about what to buy. So the idea that an AI could just say, here's what to buy, and then everyone just say, okay, I will buy that. Despite the fact that ChatGPT 4 and 3.5 and 3 and Google Bard all tell you different things, so AI does not have any one right answer, one single best answer, because each of them are telling you different things. It is no different than having a, a friend who's an expert who gives you answers. And that's what an awesome resource, but it doesn't replace the need or desire by consumers to go out on the open web, to do work themselves, to understand things and make their own purchase decisions. And so we think that AI is an, an amazing augmentation to helping people navigate the world of information, but it is Google who has been for 20 years almost the leader in helping people navigate the world of information. And they have been the leading research organization on AI. So when we look at all of this stuff, it is much more about thinking, how might AI change the way that people engage with information over the next five to 10 years plus? And what are Google's roles in all of that? And none of that is really an information advantage where you say like, well, there's not many people looking at this, so you know we can, we can know better. It's about trying to understand this broad scope of things. Um, that being said, we don't really own small, small caps, but we're kind of cap agnostic, right? We've got plenty of businesses that are high single digit billion dollar market cap businesses. And we've owned those in the past, one of those in the future. And, you know, so we're just agnostic to size. We're just looking for opportunity. And, and anyone who listens to this podcast knows that culture is a huge aspect of, of everything that we think about and talk about here. And, and one thing that's interesting to me is that the ensemble team has embraced remote work in a way that um, a lot of investment firms have not. What do you think other firms are missing if they firmly believe that investing roles should primarily be or only be in office? So I think they're missing that in 10 years, when an LP comes to you and says, why is it that all of your talent happens to live within commute distance of the office that somebody else picked 20 years ago? They're not going to have a good answer. Right. I, I don't think that remote work for, for equity research organizations, I think that it will absolutely be a part of every organization. The idea that you could have analysts who have different lived experiences living in different parts of the country, different parts of the world, and that you're going to foreclose that opportunity and say, we only work with people who live within commute distance of the headquarters that some old guy a long time ago picked is an unacceptable answer in my view. So to me, it is not so much that we've embraced it as that 
we were lucky enough to get involved with remote work prior to COVID. And that was mostly because of the traffic patterns in the Bay Area started to get so bad. We started to struggle to attract people who lived in the Bay Area with us, right? So local people, and they wanted to work remote some just to not fight the traffic. And so we were lucky enough to kind of learn those skills prior to COVID. And then shutting the office down like we did and operating kind of completely remotely for 18 months, we were like, this just works fine for us, right? And so now we are not a remote organization. We are a hybrid organization, but we're remote first in the sense that in-person activities are super valuable, particularly relationship building. You know, I, I don't believe we're all going to go live in the metaverse and it's all digital communications. I just think that meeting in person needs to serve a purpose rather than it being the default. The default should be we should work where we need to work to get the best work done. So when you're doing brainstorming activity, in-person is absolutely better than doing it on Zoom. When you're building relationships with clients, when you're building relationships with coworkers, in-person is better for all of those things. But when you're you're reading a six hours of transcripts on a company that you're researching, why does it matter that you're sitting in office next to somebody else? And some people will say, well, yes, but there's those important messages that happen in or conversations in the break room. So we're all going to commute every day for our whole lives because a couple accidental conversations that have, I think you can find other ways to make sure those conversations are, are captured, right? And so one of the big things I think is that if your whole organization embraces it, as opposed to just allowing junior people to do it, in which... Though in, in that case, when, when organizations do that, the senior people all work in the office and they allow junior people to work remotely, what they're really signaling is if you want a real career, you come into the office. If you're kind of a secondary player, you can work remote. And the whole organization understands that, right? So, But by embracing it fully, I think you solve a lot of the problems that people have because you don't have like an on-site senior staff and off-site junior staff. You have an entire organization that is working fluidly in person or digitally as needed. And... In, in this podcast, we don't traditionally ask people about their actual mentors, people that they learned from. Um, one thing that I like to ask about is stocks that have been mentors for you, something, mm -hmm. a stock that taught you a lot of, um, and, and has informed your investing philosophy and process. So are there any companies that you've invested in during your career that taught you lessons about the power of compounding, either, you know, <laughs> good or bad, that, you know, stay with you today and, 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 you know, are just, you know, something that you almost put up on a wall to say, like, don't ever forget this. Yeah. So if you think about, I mean, I like many investors who purport to invest in kind of high quality growing companies, and I say purport meaning myself as well, I'm purporting to do that. Right. And not every company actually works out that way. Right. So mm -hmm. as someone who reports to do that, like many other people, I started off as much more of a classic value investor, right? Like I, I read the good original text of investing, right? And those were about balance sheet based investing, the, you know, the most historical ones. And as I kept reading, I started learning that there's been this evolution that that value has the real value of a business, except for one that's going out of business and you're liquidating, is its cash flows, not its balance sheet. So why would you focus on the balance sheet value if the value that you're going to accrue as an owner is the cash flows, right? And so I made that transition. But I definitely was skeptical, as I think everybody should be early in their career, about my ability to forecast very far out into the future at all, right? Yeah. But I've spent a lot of time, and our team has spent a lot of time studying growth and, and how does growth happen and how much happens and what are base rates for industries? What are the base rates? A base rate for listeners, like basically for an average, like historically, over any 10-year period, you could look like all the companies and how fast they grew. And you could look, you could break them down by saying, what were the fast growers at the beginning and the slow growers at the beginning? How did they all grow over time? And what you find is that most businesses, no matter how fast or slow they're growing, within five years have recongregated around a four to six percent revenue growth rate on average. And so if you're finding businesses that you think are going to grow faster than that, 
you're expecting they're going to break the base case, right? They're going to do better than average. And to have that belief, you better have reasons for that belief, right? It's not just, it's otherwise just speculation, right? I hope it's going to, but if you have real beliefs, right? So for me, I think the business that probably taught me the most about that was MasterCard. Hmm. So I believe we first invested in MasterCard in 2010, might have been 2009. And I mean, we believed it was going to be able to grow at a nice clip for a long period of time, but I was quite skeptical about how far out I could forecast that to be true. And here I am at the same time saying they have an almost insurmountable duopoly with Visa. There's no doubt that cash is going to keep converting to cards. Of course, there is regulatory risk. Of course, there's the potential for other payment solutions, like when the when Apple Wallet came out and, and people were going to be able to pay by their phones. There was, a, there was a period of time when people were like really worried about the credit cards. And it turns out all that really was was another way to use your credit card, right? Mm-hmm. It's just a way to put the, the Visa and MasterCard rails inside your iPhone and it accelerated their, their, their business. And so I think watching that and watching the enormous returns the stock has generated over that time period, just if I go back and look at our models from like 10 years ago, I think like, oh my gosh, how could I have been so pessimistic? And that's with the benefit of hindsight. So you'd be very careful, right? But I think that it helped me understand that there are times when the growth path is not clear, but it's not as cloudy as for the average company. And, and you can see out five, seven, 10 years, much beyond that. I don't think you can really see much at all. Um, but you know, we, we've been able to extend kind of the runways that we're willing to underwrite. And given that difficulty of predicting what the next seven or 10 years is going to look like, this may sound like a challenging question, but I, I would love to understand your vision for what Ensemble is going to look like or your goal for what Ensemble is going to look like in seven years. So it was eight years ago that um, we bought out the founder and um, and the current management team took over. And we set a goal of growing net new assets by 10% a year, meaning excluding market volatility, we wanted to add about 10% to our EUM. And we felt like this was a level of growth that once you add market appreciation on top of it, gets you to something like 15%. This is, remember, it's not just an equity book, it's a balanced book, right? And um, and then you double about every five years in size. And, and we felt like, well, that's really healthy. <laughs> we do this for five years, 10 years, 4X, 15 years, 8X, 20 years, 16X. Like, wow, this is going to be a healthy business. We're all going to do great as owners. But also it's like a controllable level of growth, right? Like being 10% bigger than the prior years, you, you're not like having to, the wheels aren't coming off, you know? And over those eight years, we've grown net new assets 12.7% a year. And so, you know, we, we've been able to achieve those goals. And we've gotten bigger. And so growth gets harder when you get bigger, but it's still a very tiny company in the grand scheme of things. You know, we're managed about a billion and a half bucks. We've got 18 people. Look around the investment world. There's a much bigger organizations out there. So, you know, I think that that over the next five to 10 years, we'll, we'll double once, then we'll double again. And I think that the business won't change all that much in terms of what, what we have on offer to our customers, like the principles that we have, how we're running the business. But I have certainly learned since it was just two of us when I started, like as you grow, you need to completely reinvent how you do business because running an 18 person firm is totally different than a four person firm. Four person firm, it's basically a team and you can talk about everything all together, right? That is totally unwieldy when you're 18 people and you need to start figuring out how do we push out authority to various people? How can we run groups run independently? But we all still need to stay in alignment, in harmony, right? We don't get too fragmented in some way. So, you know, we've, we've done a lot of work on that. And, and um, I think that's the sort of thing we'll keep doing and the ways that we'll change 
is we'll change how we run to better run a larger organization. Interesting, interesting. I think that's achievable growth. Growth is something that's really important for any business, right? Investment management or company you're investing in. And so we'll close uh, this really interesting discussion with a version of the question we always close with. And, and so for for the investment managers that we're talking to, what we're closing with is, what do you think is the most underappreciated thing about the op- investing opportunity set you see in front of you? So maybe talk a little bit. I mean, it gets into differentiation. It gets into out, you know, long-term time horizon. But I'm just interested in how you, you know, what do you think is so what do you think is so interesting about the world over as you're looking over that same horizon where you're trying to grow assets 10 to 12% per year? So I think there is an intersection and about a question that's going to be answered the next, say, 24 months about the U.S. economy that directly impacts the sort of investing that we do. So the decade prior to COVID, between the financial crisis and up until COVID, was a very slow growth economic environment. Nominal GDP was about 4% compared to more like a 5% or so, or 6% even in some years previously. Inflation fell below 2%. And as much as the Fed talks about having a target of 2%, it's not like the American economy has really operated with that low inflation for most of its history, except for this very low growth period, right? And real economic growth was depressed, as was productivity. I believe that that was mostly an extended hangover of the financial crisis. That what happened was consumers normally during a recession, you delever and then you relever back up and that's the expansion, right? This time the delevering went on years and years and years. And the government, rather than saying, we got to fill the demand hole, the government was like, we need to embrace austerity, right? We need to, to slow our spending. And the, the world really in the US moved into this low growth trap really. And, and they talk about like the new normal, right? And it was often believed like we're never going to have inflation again. <laughs> Here we are today, right? We're, we can never have high growth again. You know, I mean, the labor market, we can never have unemployment get that low. And, and then here we are and all these things are happening. And so at some point, you know, we've had a year and a half of recession worries and we have yet to have a recession. But at some point in the next 24 months, we're either going to not have had a recession or we will and we'll start to be coming out the other side. And the really big open question, I think, is, well, the decades ahead be more reminiscent of the pre-financial crisis era of relatively tight labor markets where you have real productivity growth and real wage growth and real demand growth and companies invest in capacity to serve that demand? Or will it be a a return more to the new normal period pre-COVID when companies recognize there just isn't that much demand, we need to dial back our investments, return cash to shareholders, and we return to a lower growth, lower inflation, lower interest rate environment. I think a lot of investors have been confused by the fact that interest rates were so low and stock valuations got high and started to think there was like this one for one correlation. That's only true if you have a static asset. If you have a total static asset and the interest rates fluctuate like like a bond, but yeah, the bonds move right along with interest rates, right? But for a company, it is much more about the value generation that they that they do. And so for us, you know, here we are with interest rates, you know, at five or whatever for Fed funds. And and yet the market's basically flat back from when Fed funds were zero, right? So that tells you it's not just about interest rates. And all through the 1990s, which many people thought it was like speculative, you know, valuation bubble, you had high interest rates. Tenure was like 6%, right? So it's not like you need a low interest rate environment for, for growth businesses to do well. You do need a low interest rate environment 
for speculative assets to do well. Mm. I think that there was a speculative bubble that peaked in early 2021. You can look at things like the Goldman Sachs unprofitable tech stock index that collapsed. And that was a function of speculation and low interest rates. But the broader set of high quality growth companies that create real value in the world, their valuations were never dependent on low rates. And if we have moderate rates and moderate real growth, right, along with those higher rates, you know, the economy and those companies are going to do just fine and their valuations are going to be strong. And I guess the last, so the question, the, the answer to, in your mind is that you guys would do better in an environment where, you know, there's true growth. And even if the rates were higher, that's that. that I think the work. world would do better, but yes. And I, and I, the reason I bring it up as, as the opportunity set is that investors, whether they like it or not, need to make forecasts about the world. If you believe that, you know, real growth is going to go back to 1.5 to 2% or something and, and persist for a decade, then assets have different values than if you think that real growth can go back to 2 to 3% over the course of a decade. And I don't know what the answer to that is. And investors can't know which one it's going to be. But I think that as we go through this, this period and we exit, either we avoid a recession or we come out the other side of a recession, it's going to be really important for investors, especially investors who haven't been doing this for, for 20 years or longer, which many people haven't, is to not lock into that 10-year pre-COVID era and think that that was somehow equilibrium. That was not equilibrium. We had the, the loosest labor markets for a long period of time, right? We had a demand shortage globally. I mean, Europe really struggled, right? So there was a demand shortfall, an excess supply for a decade. It was not normal. It was not equilibrium. And, uh, and it's important that investors don't kind of relock in to that. Well, Sean, I think that's a really interesting place to close and thought-provoking. So thank you for all of your insights regarding process, philosophy, culture, um, you know, outlook. It's, uh, I, mean, I think people really enjoy listening to, to as, as they always do and reading your stuff, but listening to you as well. Thank you so much for being on Compounders. Thank you, Ben. And thanks for all the writing and the podcast that you do. Um, you're a very valuable contributor to the, to the investment community. So thank you so much. I appreciate that. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye now. For full disclosure... I don't own any of the stocks discussed on this podcast. In addition, Ensemble owns MasterCard, Google, and Fastenal, but not Transdime.